0: Well, there you go. It's a great exit right there. I love it. Um, If you're a third grader and you have your new copy of the Bible, I would ask you to open it. Uh, Open it to Mark chapter 1. Everybody else can do the same. If you don't have a Bible, have no fear. You'll find it in the bulletin. Uh, We're starting today a brand new series on the gospel of Mark. This is the second book of the New Testament. You'll find it second into the New Testament. It is one of four books that tell us the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Uh, and it's my favorite of the four because it is the fastest gospel. It's the quickest to read. It's, it tells you basically everything you need to know about Jesus in 16 short chapters. And so we're going to be looking at this beautiful book uh, all the way through Easter starting today. Except for a break we're going to take uh, for Christmas So we're going to be in it for a while. We're going to take a slow walk through a fast gospel, uh, beginning here with the first 13 verses of chapter 1. Let's read together, uh, starting in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord And the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. That's the beginning of the gospel according to Mark. Uh, Have you ever had this situation, I'm sure you have, where you were walking with someone and they were out ahead of you because they were so much faster at walking than you were or maybe they were on a different kind of time schedule or mission than you were? Uh, I'm sure my family sitting up here would would say, if I allowed them to have the microphone right now, uh, (laughs) They would say, Stan is the fastest walker, especially in stores and places like that. In fact, he leaves us behind. What a jerk. He leaves us behind all the time. (laughs) And I have to admit it. I I do this. And, And in my mind, there's one simple reason why. When I go shopping, I know what I want. And I know where it's at. And I go straight to it. I grab that item. And I go straight to where you pay for it. And I walk out. Right? That's my kind of shopping technique. But oftentimes, the other members of the family, especially the kids, they like to browse. They like to look at this and that, and let's go to the toy aisles down every one, right, and check out everything, every clearance item. And I just kind of, I'm on a mission. So oftentimes, I'll be walking along, doing my thing, and I hear, psst, or something like that, or dad. I look back, and I'm several tiles ahead of them, you know, tiles on the, several tiles, maybe a dozen tiles ahead, and I have to. I have to remember, I can't be a jerk. I've got to go back and walk at the same pace as everybody else. Well, I bring that up because every time I read Mark, and I try to read Mark at least once a year, sometimes twice a year, because I love this book. Every time I read it, I get that same feeling. Like Mark is just way faster than I am. He is way ahead of me. He's always in a hurry. He's telling me the most profound things in the shortest possible way. I mean, just look, for example, this this morning at the verses 12 and 13. I mean, you can't get a more mystical kind of profound story than this story of Jesus being tempted by Satan. He's like going mono to mono with the devil in the desert. And Mark tells us almost nothing about it. Notice he doesn't even say if Jesus won or not. He's that much of a hurry. He just says, yeah, by the way, there were some animals and there were some angels, and then let's go to the next thing. (laughs) Angels, animals, let's move on. In fact, Mark's favorite word, we're going to see it over 50 times as we study Mark, is the word immediately. Immediately. Because Mark wants us to see that one thing happened right after another and right after another, and he can't wait. He's breathlessly trying to get us to the next thing that Jesus did. Well, for the first time this week as I started looking, I thought, you know, all my life I thought maybe it's Mark's problem. Maybe he's just too in a hurry. Maybe he needed to take a creative writing class (laughs) at Jerusalem University and slow down a little bit in terms of how he tells a story. This year I I thought something different. I want to share that with you this morning. I think maybe Mark is in a hurry because the story he's writing was in a hurry. More than that, I think the person that he's writing about was in a certain kind of hurry. When I started thinking that way, I thought, you know, that's true. Jesus always walked out ahead of his disciples. We're going to read that a few times in Mark where the disciples are walking to a place and it says, Jesus was out ahead of them. It's almost like Jesus was more eager to get to the next thing he had to do for people than they were eager to go there with him. There's beauty in that. There's wonder in that. But there's also a reminder to us in that that following Jesus, keeping up with Jesus, is not easy. He's quick. Uh, He's a man on a mission. And the mission of Jesus stops for no man. Stops for no woman. If you want to be with Jesus and follow Jesus, which is what Mark's all about, how to follow Jesus, you're going to have to learn how to keep up with him. Uh, Sometimes we imagine that following Jesus is easy. We think if, if I come to Jesus, I know what's going to happen. My whole life is going to click together and it's all going to be so good and so easy. After all, what could be easier than getting spiritual? What could be easier than getting a little religion? Sometimes it seems that way to us. But it doesn't take very long to read about Jesus to realize following that man, whether you call it religious or spiritual or whatever you call it, following that man is anything but easy. This man's a man born to suffer. He's a man born to get to a place in a hurry, and he's going there. And if you and I want to go with him, buckle up. So if you look at your bulletin this morning, let's see how it starts, okay? That's, that's what this whole passage is about. How does following Jesus begin? Three things today. Look at your bulletin. First of all, what do we need to do to prepare to follow Jesus? We see that in verses 1 to 8. And then, uh, second of all, we see in verses 9 to 11, why is it that Jesus alone can prepare us to follow him? Why can only he help us? And then thirdly, in verses 12 to 13, what does Jesus do or how does he prepare us to follow him? All right? So first of all, What must we do to follow Jesus? And you see that in verses 1 to 18 in the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a voice crying in the desert to prepare the way for Jesus. He was getting people ready to follow Jesus. And the two words that John used the most about getting ready to follow Jesus were repentance and forgiveness repentance and forgiveness you can see those words uh, a couple times first of all there in verse 4 John proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins Uh, and then you can see it again there in verse 5 they came out and were baptized by him confessing their sins Uh, he even mentions in verse 7 how he baptizes with water but Jesus who is mightier than him will come after him, meaning John was preparing the way for Jesus to come into the lives of the people, so that if you listen to John, you would be ready to greet Jesus coming into your life. Well, what does it mean to listen to John? It means to repent and to receive the forgiveness of God. Now, both of those words, repentance and forgiveness, those are among the top five words in the whole Bible, by the way. So, you know, if you want to learn about Christianity, you got to get those two words, Both of them have to do with sin. Repentance means turning from sin to God. Turning around from sin towards God. Uh, Spitting out of your mouth, like we said last week, all the ways that you've rebelled against God and opening your life up to His work as He moves into your life in grace. That's repentance. Well, forgiveness has to do with the opposite side of repentance. It has to do with the fact that God... Washes clean All of those people who repent of their sins Did y'all know this morning That the Bible says this good thing There is not a single There is not a sin too great That it cannot be forgiven to those who truly repent It's a beautiful thing When repentance happens Forgiveness follows And when forgiveness comes A person is ready To follow Jesus Christ Now Now Let's think about exactly how John illustrated this. John was in the desert. Did you notice that? He was out in the woods, out in a barren place. The Jordan River ran through that place. And so because the river was there, he went down into the river and stood in the river and baptized people. He baptized thousands of people. It was a revival movement in Israel. Uh, It says there that all of Judea and all of Jerusalem came out to John. I mean, he was the talk of the town. Uh, He was on the front page of the Jerusalem Times, and everybody was talking about what he was doing out there at the desert by the river. Think about what the picture shows. You have a desert, and you have a river, and water being put over the top of a person who is in a barren, dry desert. What's the illustration? Death is now able to give way to life. Have you ever seen uh, satellite pictures of the Middle East? Google Maps, Apple Maps. What does it look like in the Middle East? What color is it from the sky? Tan, brown, dead. And then you'll see like a city here and there, like Dubai. And you'll zoom into Dubai And in the middle of all that brown, there is, all of a sudden, green. Actually, the brightest of green, if you look at Dubai. uh, I like maps, and I look at maps often, and Dubai is bright green. Why? Because they pumped water from somewhere else, because the desert doesn't have much. They pump water in and irrigate desert land, and it becomes green again. John is applying water to people in a desert place to show that in our sin our lives become desert like they become barren and the only solution is that god would pour out the water from heaven the water of his spirit to make us new again and that's what happens that that's what has to happen in our lives if we're going to repent if we're going to be forgiven And if we're going to be prepared to follow Jesus on this very fast journey that he's on through life from here to heaven. New life has to come down from heaven from God. This is the reason why, by the way, if you look there again at verse uh, 2. Look down at verse 2. This is why he quotes Isaiah. Because it's Isaiah in chapter 40 who says, God, I know, I see the vision. Israel is going to go back to the desert. Israel had come from the desert when they were delivered out of Egypt. They went into the promised land, but now they're going to go back to the desert because they've sinned against God. But in the desert, there's going to come a voice. There's going to come the Lord Himself after that voice. And when the Lord comes, the desert itself is going to become a garden. Uh, Isaiah goes on to say the trees are going to clap their hands and the rivers are going to sing for joy. I mean, he just he starts talking like a poet is seeing what it looks like when a little bit of water is applied to a place that has been used to having no water. And so John in his preaching and John in his baptism is laying the groundwork for an oasis in the desert and not a single person in this room and not a single person in the world can follow Jesus without it. That's what what John's saying. Prepare for the Messiah, and if you're going to prepare, you've got to be washed. If you're going to prepare, water has got to come down on you. If you're going to prepare, you must confess your sin and repent from it and turn to God. Can I give you a gut check this morning? Just a real quick gut check to to ask yourself and think. Do you think of your life as a garden that you only need God to come in and pull a few weeds in or to plant a few ornamentals or to spruce up a little bit so that you can make the cover of Home and Garden magazine or do you see your life as a barren, lifeless, dry, brown, tan desert that only radical life change water from above, repentance from below that only those things can bring. This is an incredibly important gut check to ask yourself, whether you consider yourself a Christian already or whether you're not sure if you're a Christian or whether you know you're not a Christian. This is a very vital question for you to be asking yourself. If you think you're a garden that just needs a little weeding, Jesus, you're going to have no time for Jesus. You're going to have zero time for him. You say, well, I have plenty of time for Jesus. He's a great man. He's a great teacher. Yeah, that's only because you haven't read what he said, right? Because as soon as you start reading what he says, you realize he's not just merely a good teacher. Because a good teacher doesn't say things like, I am God. Worship me. A good teacher doesn't say that. A good teacher who's just a man doesn't say, hey, I am the way, truth, and the life. No one can come to God except they come through me. Like if I said that to y'all this morning, I hope that y'all would have the sense to cast me out of this place, (laughs) right? It is not a good thing for a man to make that claim. And yet Jesus made that claim and he backed that claim up because he's so much more than just a good teacher. He is the one who comes to take deserts and turn them into gardens. He's the creator God. He's the one that in the beginning, when it was all without form and void, hovered over the face of the waters and said, let there be light. He's the one who took the sea and the dry land and separated them. He's the one that filled the sea with creatures innumerable and the one who filled the sky with all kinds of birds and insects. And he's the one who put upon the land all the different animals, including us. He did all that by the word of his power. And what you and I need before we ever follow Jesus is for him to reach out his mighty hand and do the same thing to our bare and dry heart. And so John the Baptist says, repent. John the Baptist says, you must be forgiven. John the Baptist wants to get you wet, get you washed. Because in order to even start out with Jesus, you have to admit, I am nothing in myself. I need everything from Jesus Christ. Amen? It's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to remind yourself of constantly. Because sometimes we slip into this habit of thinking that the Christian life is really just about me sort of meeting Jesus halfway or me doing all the work and Jesus comes and blesses it or me making all the decisions and Jesus rubber stamps it. And all of that needs to be hit with a rude awakening. <laughs> And so let's look now at the second point, which is not only that we need to repent before we follow Jesus, but it's only Jesus that can even help you repent. He's the only one that's qualified to help you repent. Repentance means turning away from sin towards God. Now think about this, and I'm getting this from my favorite writer, C.S. Lewis. I haven't quoted him in a few weeks, so I'm due. C.S. Lewis said, here's the thing about repentance. Only bad men need to repent, but bad men can't repent. Only a good man could repent, but a good man doesn't need to repent. What a dilemma. Isn't that a dilemma? Um, That is a tremendous pickle, we might say, to be in. The moment I need repentance, and oh, I believe I need repentance deeply. I need it. I'm a sinner. I need to repent. And yet, because I'm a sinner, it keeps me from being able to repent, at least repent fully. Because my heart is always halfway held back from God. It's always got these mixed motives in it, impure in my thoughts and ways. I can't offer to God perfect repentance. In fact, the only one who ever could was Jesus. And Jesus was the only one who didn't have to repent. So, we can pray it out this morning. There's no hope for any of us. Let's pray it out. No. Because Jesus, it says, look at verse 9, came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he was baptized, heaven was torn open. All right, let me ask you some questions. Kids, answer. You can answer out loud, okay? What did John's baptism mean? I just said it. Starts with an R, ends with a pent. Repent, yes, that's right. It meant repent. I just said Jesus was the only person in all of world history who didn't need to repent. Why did Jesus go all the way out to John and have John baptize him as if he needed to repent When Jesus was literally the only one who didn't need to. Think about it. You don't have to answer out loud. That's a hard question. Think about it, though. When you go to do something, sometimes you do the thing because you have to do it for yourself. But sometimes you go and do something not because you have to do it for yourself, but because you have to do it for someone else. You agree? All the time in our lives, we're choosing to do things, not because we necessarily need it for us, but because our kids need it, or because our friends need it, or because our spouse needs it. We're always doing things on behalf of other people. Jesus, when he went to go be baptized by John, wasn't saying, I need to be forgiven, I need to repent. He was saying, Y'all need to, and here I am, the only one who can actually do it for you. And so here I am to do it. And he proved that because when he did it, heaven opened, and a voice came out and says, ah, finally. Finally, here is one in whom I am well pleased. Think about the tens of thousands of people who went out to be baptized by John. Baptism, baptism. I mean, think about how many people John had to baptize every day. His arm was wore out. I'm assured of it. Whether you think he dipped him or poured him, we'll leave that to the side for right now. Either way, his arm is tired at the end of this day, of this period of months of baptizing. And yet, only one time out of all those tens of thousands of times did heaven open up and God say, finally, here's the guy who can really repent. He, here's the one who really pleases my heart and it was Jesus. What was this? This is the mystery of the gospel right here at the beginning of Mark, mystery of the whole gospel right here. Jesus does for us what we can never do for ourselves so that he can give to us what we could never earn for ourselves. Jesus obeys in our place because we haven't obeyed. Jesus repents for us even though We're the ones that really need to repent. Jesus receives a sign of forgiveness even though he doesn't need to be forgiven so that he could bestow on us the favor of God, the forgiveness of God, the Holy Spirit to change my hard heart and to bring an oasis to the desert of my soul. Wow. If you want to follow Jesus, one of the reasons why it's so hard to follow Jesus One of the reasons it's so hard to keep up with Jesus is to remind us every step of the way we can't even begin without his work in our place. And Jesus doesn't want you to ever forget that. And so he allows our Christian life to be hard. In fact, he forces it to be hard. I will go so far as to tell you, if you became a Christian today and you weren't one before, your life will be more likely to get harder rather than easier tomorrow and onward. Because God wants you to know, it wasn't you that did it. That voice that said, here is my son in whom I'm well pleased, that wasn't something I earned. Jesus earned it. And now when we're baptized into Christ's name, it means not only that we've repented and been forgiven, but what it means more than anything is that the blessings of God are now by faith being bestowed upon people so that the word that came to Jesus now comes to me. If you can believe it this morning, God says over your life, Christian, the same thing he says over Jesus' life at the Jordan River. Behold my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. But until you think, before you start thinking, oh man, what a special person I am. What a a privilege it is for God to have me on his squad. Remember that that, those days when God was looking for someone in Israel to save the people, he only found one. And had you been there and I been there to be baptized with John, the heaven would not open for us either. And the proof of that is, just about all of us in the room have been baptized, and I don't believe heaven has opened at any of our baptisms. It didn't open at mine. I don't think it opened at yours. All to remind us that the hope is not in us, it's in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, are you relying on his work or your own? It's the most basic question. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not, are you religious or irreligious? Are you moral or immoral? Are you nice or mean? Are you scary or kind? Those aren't the main questions. Here's the main question. Are you relying on Jesus' work or are you relying on your own? Heaven and hell will be divided over that question. And that question only, because you can't bring enough good works to God that he would split heaven and say, my beloved son. But guess what? Jesus can and did. And if you rely on his work, he will surely give it to you. Surely he has promised to do it. So let's look at the last point today. This will be a lot briefer. Right after the baptism, Jesus, it says in verse 12, was immediately driven out into the desert. And you might say, well, he was already in the desert. Yeah, but he's, even, he's being driven even deeper. And what this is teaching us is that from the moment Jesus was baptized, he was saying, I want to be in their place. I want to take their place, Father. Let me take their place. And the first thing that has to happen after he takes our place is suffering. And so it says the Spirit, literally the word for um, drove there is the word for cast out. The Spirit cast out Jesus deeper into the wilderness where he was alone, no other human around him. Yeah, he had angels. That's a great thing. I'd love to hang out with angels, as I'm sure you would. But I don't really like the other company. Uh, Satan, who is attacking him nonstop for 40 days... And wild animals. I don't like that either. And I'm sure Jesus didn't particularly enjoy that experience of being out in the wild, exposed to everything by himself, facing off with Satan's temptations. One after the other for 40 days. And yet what God is telling us here is you and I are expensive to love. When he takes us on and says, I will will repent for you. I I will come in your place and obey for you. Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew he was taking on a very high cost. And from the very moment that the word go came, he was willing to die. Mark is in a hurry from this point on, and so is Jesus. And you know what he's in a hurry to do? He's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. Where he will lay his life down and be nailed to a cross in our place. He is almost eager to suffer. Because to him, it is the cost of loving us. Just the way, I mean, parents, would you say it's expensive to love your kids? Yeah, it can be. Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's expensive. But we love them. We love them with all our hearts. In fact, sometimes, even though it's expensive to love them, we don't even notice the expense because that's how much we love them. Well, Jesus, from the moment he started his life and the moment he started his ministry, he started paying the debt that we owed. And that period of time, those 33 years that he lived in suffering, including the last three where he really suffered, I'm sure at times seemed to him to be only a day because of how much he loved us and wanted to rescue sinners like us. Maybe that's why Mark tells the whole story of Jesus as if it happened in a week. (laughs) Immediately, 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 immediately. Maybe... He got the sense that this Jesus, he's in a hurry. It's like he actually wants to go to the cross. Weird. And yet glorious. Weird and yet glorious. Because it was there that he took his wedding vow to us. It was there that he adopted us as his children. It was there that he gave everything he had to die for us. But listen, listen. One writer says it this way. We tasted the apple and so Jesus had to taste the vinegar. And the gall. We sinned in every faculty of our being, and so he had to bleed in every vein of his. That's a good way to put it. Good way to put it. And it's something that you and I need to remember every day. As we walk with Jesus, every step we take, instead of thinking, Oh man, I gotta do this again, I gotta obey again, what a drag. Or we think, Whew, what a what a favor I'm doing the Lord. He must be thrilled to have every step we take. Instead, we ought to trade those out for these kind of thoughts. Oh, that's another drop of blood. Another vein of Jesus opened up. Another taste of vinegar. Another taste of gall. I was expensive to love Jesus. And you loved me to the bitter end. The message of repentance, the message of forgiveness is not an easy message. It's a little bit bitter to the taste, if we're honest. I mean, this is one of the reasons why Jesus says, hey, I'm a, I'm a Christ of the cross, and so if you're going to follow me, you've got to take up your cross too. Uh, you've got to deny yourself because I denied myself for you. And he's just telling us, like, to remember the true gospel. It, it doesn't always feel good. It doesn't always taste good. But in doing so... Streams will open in the desert. Life will come out where there wouldn't otherwise have been no life. Beauty where there was just ugliness. Don't you want it? Don't you want to follow Jesus? Even if he's ten paces ahead of us all the time, isn't it a marvelous thing to know that every step we take was paid for by his precious blood? was paid for by his costly obedience, amen?